Welcome to Conversations with Mayi Lenz. That's me. I'm your host, a photographer obsessed with helping women lead unapologetically. On this show, you will hear not only from me, but from other amazing women who inspire me and are making a difference in the community. What does that mean, leading unapologetically? To me, it's leading from a place of authenticity without apologies. In other words, not seeking approval for being yourself, what you care for, and value. My goal with this podcast is to inspire and help women develop powerful confidence in themselves and recognize the value we bring to the community and the world as a whole. Whether you are a stay-at-home mom, entrepreneur, pursuing a career, or growing your business, we are here to build each other up. We are bilingual speakers and want to bring value to both the English and Spanish-speaking communities. Some shows will have a Spanish label when we have a Spanish-only speaking guest. Let's learn and grow together. My guest today is Heather Stang, the author of Mindfulness and Grief and the Guided Journal, From Grief to Peace. She's the founder of the Mindfulness and Grief Institute, where she facilitates Awaken, a mindfulness-based online group, and hosts the Mindfulness and Grief podcast. Hi, Heather. Welcome to the show. It's so good to finally have you here with us today. Before we begin our conversation, can you please tell everyone a little bit about yourself and what led you to open the Mindfulness and Grief Institute. Absolutely. And first, I just want to say how grateful I am to finally be here. This has been in the works for I think a couple months now, and I've been really looking forward to it because your listeners are my people. I've been an entrepreneur (laughs) since I was 26. And I'll back up even a little more to tell, tell you a little bit about what led me to where I am now. And that starts at the age of nine when my mother had to pull me out of school and tell me that her brother, my uncle Doug, had died by suicide. Oh, wow. And just to give you some, uh, a timeline, like this is 1977. And so culturally, we did not talk about suicide the way we do now, it's still very stigmatized. It's still need a lot of work around it. But back then it was very taboo to talk about. And so in my family, the grief experience was definitely impacted by that inability to communicate, even within the family system about the very complicated feelings and all the questions, you know, we'll always ask why we'll never have that answer. I, of course, didn't know at the age of seven that I was going to grow up and be a, you know, a grief professional, a thanatologist. Um, But around the age of 30, we'll fast forward. I was an entrepreneur. I was running a web development company. Mm -hmm. One of the first in my areas, I started it in 1996. And if you all do math, you're going to figure out how old I am. Um, but anyway, <laughs> you know, so, so I, I was running that, but I wouldn't say I was running it very efficiently. When I look back, I had a lot of stress. I didn't have strong coping skills. So a lot of my stress management involved the local pub, um, you know, and, and I don't, I don't want to berate myself because this is all about self-compassion. Mm-hmm. And, and when I look back on how I ran that business and how I coped with things, I can just say I'm grateful that I've done the work I've done. What happened is I had a a health crisis that was triggered by all the stress and the inability to cope. And I was diagnosed with shingles. Mm. 
Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. that was not, not fun. And a nurse practitioner suggested that I slow up the drinking that I get a grip. I think she literally said those words. And she said, you need to do something about your stress. Go try yoga, mm. which still back then was a little new, you know, now yoga gets thrown around for everything, but even back then it was a little, a little different. And <laughs> right. I'd had some, a little bit of experience with yoga in the seventies with my mom watching PBS. So I went out and got a book and taught myself yoga and started training and I went away on a retreat. And the retreat happened to be at Kerpalu Institute up in, um, up in Massachusetts. And it was my first retreat was actually about three weeks after 9-11. So I landed at this yoga retreat to work on my stress and the collective grief. And a lot of people in that room with me were from New York city and many had lost friends, coworkers, loved ones in the terror attack. So it was kind of both a community experience of loss But what I found turning inward for that weekend, spending all that time alone with myself, my thoughts, my feelings, which I had not done, you know, since I was a little kid, as far as I can remember. And all of my stored up grief just came pouring out, you know, grief over 9-11, grief over how I treated my body because as a, I, I was a ballerina growing up and I developed uh, bulimia. Mm. And, and so the grief over, over uh, my isolation from my body, you know, yoga landed me just right back in all of it and grief over my uncle, like that unprocessed grief from childhood just came like pouring out of my chest. And I even remember the yoga pose I was in, I can kind of close my eyes and go back to that moment. It was so pivotal. And it was that emotional release and flood of awareness wrapped in a space that was compassionate and and surrounded by compassionate people where we were all processing very big losses that ultimately, and, you know, I could spend a long time telling you the journey, but ultimately landed me in a position as a volunteer on the national suicide lifeline, my local suicide hotline doing suicide prevention in honor of my uncle and eventually led me to a master's degree in thanatology, which is the study of death, dying, and bereavement. I was going to go next day. It's (laughs) it's a fun word to drop at a party. (laughs) Nobody (laughs) knows like, what is that? Um, You know, sometimes I just want to say, you know, come up with something really simple that I do. Like I just pet my dog for a living. Um, (laughs) That'd be great. Um, And, and eventually I, while I was in that program at, at hood studying thanatology, I was also becoming a yoga therapist. So like I'm doing this kind of dual thing and, or maybe I was pretty much finished with yoga therapy, but what happened is in that, in that program, I saw parallels between principles of thanatology, evidence-based research on grief and bereavement between like parallels between that and between ancient practices of mindfulness, of yoga, of meditation, which, I mean, this is, by the way, I I always am really 
clear. I did not invent yoga or meditation for grief. You know, the people who did that died thousands of years ago. This has been around for a long time. I just put together the modern research with the ancient practices and developed the mindfulness and grief system, which is kind of outlined in the mindfulness and grief book and in the forthcoming handbook of grief therapy. Mm, That's awesome. Um, You know, when um, my sister passed away, um, I started doing a lot of research on um, not a lot of research. I was just going through all the emotions and I pra- I've been practicing mindful meditation for a very long time. And I believe that helped me a lot, but um, I, we recently had a death in the family and um, my cousins were sending like links here and there. And, and they were talking about the stages of, of grief. What are the perceptions on the stages of grief? Some people say there's seven, some people try to say there's, there's five and, and, and how can people cope with grief when they have experienced losses in both their, their personal and professional life? Well, I'll start by addressing the idea behind stages of grief. And I, I think it's important to acknowledge Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who um, wrote the book on death and dying. And it's from that book that the perception that there are stages of grief arises. Mm. Um, But in, if you read the introduction to this book, you know, Dr. Kubler-Ross, who is a saint in my eyes, because what she did for the dying patients who were treated like lab animals, Mm. just treated horrifically. She came in and humanized them through her interviews, through her compassion. And, And that's what she writes about in on death and dying. And in that book, she says in the introduction, you know, these are the main five things that I've observed in patients who are dying. So right there, Mm. patients who are dying, not grieving people. And these are the main five. And she goes on to mention, this is not research. You know, she hasn't done a full statistical analysis of this. Does everybody go through this? These are the things that are bubbling to the top. Right. And of course, then there've been follow-up books that have been written. Um, and I think David Kessler just wrote another book where he's added a sixth stage of grief uh, on meaning making, which my colleague, Robert Niemeyer does a lot of research around meaning making. And I'll, I'll talk more about that when we talk about coping. Um, so meaning is something that isn't new to grief, but I think it's becoming new in our conversation around grief. Mm. So back to this idea of stages, there are no stages of grief. But there are things that a lot of us go through. And so as thanatologists, we like to look at what I would call task-based models that aren't prescriptive on how you should feel. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, if you look at the five stages of grief, you know, anger, bargaining, denial, depression, acceptance, you know, these are things that, yeah, many of us do feel. There are also things we feel that aren't in that list. You know, there's, there's like, that's the thing. It's not a comprehensive list and nobody feels everything exactly the same. So we like to look at models of grief that give people some guidelines of what you might expect, what you might want to work on without being overly prescriptive because your experience of grief 
is as unique as the relationship you have with the person who died. And so anyone who has lost someone they love, let's say that a sibling dies and there are four other siblings, each of the remaining four siblings is going to have a different grief experience because they had a different relationship, different coping skills. They have different personalities, temperaments, uh, social support, spiritual beliefs. There's the, what um, one of my favorite grief researchers is William Warden, and I'll talk about his task-based model in a moment. It's one of many that are great, um, but he has what he calls the mediators of grief. They're the, the reasons why we grieve the way we do, and it is a very long, nuanced list, and I just listed out a few for you. So the idea behind a task-based model, um, and I'll, I'll talk to you about William Warden's four tasks of mourning. There's other great ones out there. And he himself says, I don't care if you use my model or one of our colleagues' models, but as a counselor, it's important to have a model so that you're moving your client forward and so that you know what tools to offer them as they progress on their, through their journey. So the first, the first task of mourning, according according to Dr. Warden is to accept the reality of the loss, you know, and that's not the same type of acceptance that I think gets associated with the five stages of grief where it's like acceptance is, you know, um, I'm, I'm moving forward in my life. His his literally means to accept it. Like we've all, I shouldn't say we all, (laughs) I can say I have certainly had an experience where my cell phone rang And part of me thought it was my stepfather who had died the week before, you know, oh, that might be Tom. And then you have that moment where you're like, oh no, that's not Tom. He died. Right. That's what we're talking about. And a little bit of that is normal for a little bit of time. You know, if it's a year later and you're pretending that they're still on a vacation somewhere that might require a little more intervention, you know, but that happens, this, you know, this lack of just being able to have it land can be hard right at first. Yeah. The second, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, yeah, I was going to say that accepting, accept, accepting the reality, like you said, it's, it's the hardest part to, uh, sometimes we just don't want to let go. Yeah. And I think that's a different type of acceptance. What he's talking about in this first task is just the facts, like okay. just accepting the fact that it happened. And we'll talk more about the reality, because I think you're touching on the big question of grief, right? Yes. How do I go on now that this happened? So the second task is to cope with the pain of loss. And that's where a lot of us start to either, um, I'll just say, do things like drink too much or, you know, uh, isolate or, or maybe we, you know, which would be considered maladaptive or unhelpful coping strategies. There's still coping strategies because we're trying to do that to get through, or maybe we reach out for help, adaptive coping strategies. Maybe we learn how to turn towards our breath when we're feeling overwhelmed or use meditation or yoga or reach out to a friend. There's, you know, so coping, how do I, how do I manage this overwhelming pain? The third task is to learn how to live your life without them present, to to learn how to get through the day, which could be if you have kids taking through, taking care of the children, getting them to school and taking out the trash and paying all the bills, you know, 
how do you live your life without that person, which, which could also mean the loss of a confidant, right? There's a lot of secondary losses, like the loss of the person that we go to dinner with, or, you know, that we tell our troubles to. So it's navigating that piece of our lives. And then finally, in that fourth task, it's to, it's to embark on your new life while maintaining an enduring connection with the person who died. This Mm. is really important. It's to continue to live your life and find a way to emotionally relocate the person who died so that they're close to your heart. They're in your memories, you know, and and I'm assuming the relationship was a healthy one. Of course, if it was an abusive relationship, this is going to be a different task, right? Right. For some, for a healthy relationship, it's learning how to bring up their name and tell a story about them without it being completely devastating. You know, it's about not being afraid to say you miss them. It's about finding a way to maybe honor their memory through service or through continuing their work or just by having their picture on the wall and smiling at them. Or smile. That's what I was going <laughs> to say. Sometimes people feel guilty. How, how can I laugh? How can I smile when, you know, somebody just, just passed away? Well, and this can take a lot of work and I'm not using the word time because another fallacy with grief is that time heals. Right. And it's not the time. It's what you do during your time. It's doing your grief work, which does Mm -hmm. take an element of time, but it takes effort. Um, And so we don't put a timeline on it and it's not like it has a period or a hard stop. It changes shapes. And I'll tell you a brief story of a widow that I've been working with for about a year and a half now who uh, her husband died after a long, a long illness, a very like multiple years illness. And when I first started working with her, she, she appeared very, I'll say numb to it, um, which again, not abnormal. There wasn't anything pathological or wrong with that. That was her body, her mind protecting herself you know, and she'd talk about him and there'd be a lot of, um, emotion, of course. And, oh my gosh, you know, one of the things I, that's so hard and beautiful about my job is I like fall in love with my people's people, Aww. you know, and she'd tell me stories about him. I'm like, Oh, no wonder she misses him so much. Right. And here we are, you know, and she's, she's well over a year. Not again, I'm not saying that to give a, a timeline for anyone. This is her timeline. Right. And, and she can now go through all of his photos and videos in preparation for the, for the memorial that they're going to have and laugh and not feel overwhelmed. And And that's not a, and guilty, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's that guilt. It feels like we're doing them a disservice. Yes. You know, (laughs) and I get that. I felt like that when my stepdad died, you know, I remember the first time I laughed after he died and I was like, and by the way, I was already a thanatologist. I already had the, <laughs> I already had the mindfulness and grief book proposal written. Like I was already in it when he, he was, he died my last semester of my thanatology program. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, I remember that immense guilt uh, on top of other guilt. Cause I felt like I caused his death. I had, I write about that. I felt because I didn't prevent him from having a surgery that, I'm the reason he died. 
But guess what? It took some work, but I got to the point where I'm like, I had no control over that. Mm. But for anyone listening who feels guilt, you know, know that this certainly shows up for many, many of us when a loved one dies, whether it's sudden or long-term. Yeah. You know that when you said about guilt and when my sister, actually today that we're, we're recording, like things happen for a reason. Today it's her birthday. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Today it's her birthday. And, um, when she passed a few of maybe a year or two when she passed, um, this animals kept showing up at my house. (laughs) And just to tell you a story short, I rescued one little bunny. She was like about three months and now she's two. And I had this pit bull that came to my house and I was getting out of my car and I was like, oh my God. So I closed the door and I was like, how can I get out of here? Like if this pit bull get me, like I'm going to die. And I was so afraid. So I just put my hand out and I'm like, okay, if he smells my hand, maybe he'll be nice and he won't do anything. He opened the door of my car. He went inside my car. I was like, I'm dead. Oh my God, I'm dead. And he was so playful. But the story short, I had to take him to the shelter. Mm-hmm. And when I went to drop him off, um, he was just there looking at me. And the lady asked, are you sure you don't want to uh, keep him? I'm like, I can't keep him. And I just started crying. When I saw him, I started crying and crying. And when I got in my car and I went home, I got in, in the freeway or expressway. Um, and I started crying and I said out loud, I can save everyone. And I realized that I was in some form felt guilty also because I couldn't save my sister. Yeah, that's, that is an amazing integration that you had over that experience with the pit bull and the experience with your sister. And I just want to acknowledge her birthday and that we're having this conversation today. What's her name? What's her sister's name? Diana. Happy birthday, Diana. Sounds like she's coming to you through, through animals, which a lot of people get those signs, you know, through, through critters. I, I feel like Cinderella. <laughs> I'm like, soon I'll, I'll be talking to mouse and, and, <laughs> and birds. <laughs> yeah. Birds seem to be the most popular sign. And I don't know, yes. you know, if that's a spiritual thing or the fact that birds can move pretty freely about. Um, but I, I love hearing people's stories of signs yeah. and butterflies show up a lot too. Hmm. Uh, for, uh, for, since we're talking about meditation and and mindfulness and for people that don't have a meditation practice or are confused by the many practices out there and they just get discouraged are my, let's touch a little bit on, on our, what it's mindfulness and our mindfulness and meditation, the same thing. And how does mindfulness help with grief? a really great question. And again, one of my favorite things to talk about, because, you know, these words get tossed around and (laughs) if you are new to it, it can feel overwhelming. I know this because I was once new to it. So just remember that there was a time where I didn't know any of this either. And it really wasn't that long ago in the grand scheme of things, maybe about 20 years, but, um, 
So I like to think of meditation in terms of being a word is very similar to the word exercise. They're both big umbrella terms for a whole bunch of things that can be very different from one another. You can exercise by walking. You can exercise by rock climbing, you know, two different skill sets, right? You can meditate by focusing your attention on one thing that repeats over and over and over again, such as a mantra meditation or a counting meditation, or you can meditate by sending compassion out to people that are suffering or by sending compassion back to yourself. And so just like with exercise, there's many types of meditation that have many, many different purposes. And so when you are grieving, and I write about this a lot, because while a lot of what I do is kind of based on William Warren's foundations as four tasks, I've created, here we are with numbers again, I've created an eight step system using mindfulness and meditation and movement practices to help move people through those four tasks. And the first, I'll say three, I sometimes say my first four or what I think of as foundations of meditation, the first four steps, I'll say. And the first, the first step, and this is true, whether you're meditating for grief or just learning meditation, this is a structure that you're going to see in your community meditation class. If it's like a four week intro class, or if you're reading a book on meditation, this will look very familiar because it's kind of a tried and true structure. The first task I think in learning to meditate is learning how to relax your body and control your mind. I call this conscious relaxation. This is learning to let go as best as you can, the tension that you're holding onto in your body, letting go of what you can and focusing your attention on something singular that repeats. And so I mentioned mantra meditation. That just means silently to yourself, repeating a word in your head over and over and over again, focusing just on that in your breath. And this is where people who are new to meditation go, oh, I can't do that. (laughs) There is no, what focus on no. All right. I'm with you because that was my first reaction, but here's the second instruction. When you notice that your mind has wandered away from the task at hand, in this case, focusing on your word or your breath, you just start over. It's no big deal. We can make such a big deal out of this but drop the drama and just, you come back and you keep doing it. You know, just like if you went into the gym and they handed you a weight and told you to do bicep curls, you know, there's a point where it's going to not be easy if they've given you the right weight. And it's kind of the same with focus meditation, but as you are returning your attention back, you're building mental muscle muscles, (laughs) building mental muscles to do it better you know, and, and there really is no better because you can be really sloppy with this and still have benefits. Right. So the second type of meditation that I think is, is good to learn is mindfulness meditation. And that one's very popular. You can't go through a grocery store checkout without (laughs) seeing it on the cover of a time magazine or something. That's my favorite Um, practice. (laughs) 
Why do you love it? Let me, let me turn the tables a moment. What do you love about mindfulness? I I've tried most of them, but I feel like I just want to be present. I want to be in the here, like they say in the here and the now I better be, I want to be more present with my family, with my, my friends, with my kids, with my husband, um, with my pets. That's my main uh, focus, being present, um, not worrying about the problems that I might have tomorrow that are not even here. Um, And yesterday, I cannot change. There's nothing that I can do other than learn from my mistakes and see what I can do today that it could be better than what I did yesterday. So that's that's why I, I, I love it. That's beautifully put and not surprising from a photographer, because I think of photography is a mindfulness practice. Yes. Right. You are, you are there with all of your senses sight, you know, being the, the most uh, important one in terms of photography, I suppose, but you have to be really there, right. you know, to capture a great moment. And so you summed it up beautifully. Mindfulness is about being present. And a lot of times we use our sensory experience, sight, smell, sound, taste, touch. And when you're ready, you learn how to use your thoughts, just noticing that you are thinking in the present without diving into the story. And mindfulness, while the the first practice, the relaxation and focus practice, that, that helps give you that ease and stability that you need to be present because sometimes things that come up in the present aren't relaxing. You know, right. and, and so you're cultivating an equanimity, a calm and steady presence with what's happening. And, and so that's a powerful pr- practice to help you remember who you really are by shedding all of the past and future worries and by connecting you really closer to the truth of the moment, what's happening right now yes. without all the filters. By the way, this morning, I was like, you know what? Let me head over to her website and let me try her because you have free um, meditations there. And I try your daily guided meditation with focus, mindfulness, and compassion. It's a 20 minutes um, practice and, it, and it's awesome. I, I loved it. Let's talk about um, beauty. Mm. What is your perception of beauty? So I have this art history background that I don't talk about much, (laughs) but (laughs) I think it really that I don't know that it's that that informs it or that I chose art history because I love beauty. Hmm. Like I remember the first time I, I realized how important beauty was to me. And I think it was like my late teens, early twenties, I'd say probably early twenties. It was probably after my parents were divorced and I was probably in a more stable place, but I just remember going in, you know, hiking in nature and, and beauty is something that I can find just about anywhere when I'm being mindful, when I'm present, you know, I can find beauty in really simple things like, okay, this is going to be a funny one, but it's sitting at my computer yesterday and I took a little mindful break and I took a breath in and out and I kept my eyes open and I kind of looked down on my desk and I was like, what are those things? They're absolutely stunning. And I'm like, what is that? And I don't even know how this wound up on my desk because I don't use sugar much. 
but there's little sugar crystals. Maybe my husband was sitting here. I don't know, but there's little sugar crystals kind of like sitting on this space on my desk, but they were just capturing the light. I know that sounds really strange, but just, I think it illustrates that I can find beauty in a lot of moments, even the weird ones. Yes. <laughs> so I think, you know, beauty is simple to me. It's a very simple thing. It's, it's about, there's some clarity maybe, but not necessarily intellectual clarity. Mm. You just know, you know, it's beautiful and it can be in a conversation or in a person or in strange, mysterious sugar granules on your desk. Um, you know, my dog flowers, there's just, if you look, there's, there's so many places where it exists and you have to see that too, when you work with grief, because grief is really hard. And the stories I hear from my people are very hard. And I call them my people, not like I'm the queen, but like I'm in it with them. <laughs> like we are people together, you know, we are right. in it. Um, my tribe, you know, um, you hear these stories of really deep pain, but then you also hear the stories of the love. Yeah. And the love that remains. And that will always remain. Always. Maybe that's why we are a little afraid of letting go because we think we're going to forget them. And no one ever has. Yes. But me telling someone that doesn't necessarily land, but people figure it out. Like that's, that's, I think one of the hardest things for people working with people who are grieving. I get this question asked by, um, I do a lot of professional development training for hospices around the country. Mm -hmm. And, and, and a question comes up like, you know, what do we do when someone just seems like they don't want to let go? And number one, I know they're not going to let go. It's going to transform. It's going to just like the person I talked about who, you know, looking through the photos devastated to looking through the photos and feeling the love. That means she won't cry from time to time. Doesn't mean it doesn't hurt, but it, it, it changes. It expands to where you can remember the, the joy and the love. Yeah. You still miss them like heck. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I say, you know, you just have a lot of times people just need to feel the feels. You need to feel the clinging and the grasping. And if they're doing the right grief work, if they're working through those tasks we talked about, it happens where one day, you know, they have a call like I had with my, with my, my, uh, the widow I shared, you know, where she's like, I, something's changed. Something has changed where I can look at his picture and smile most of the time. Right. Yes. That, that happened and, and still happens, um, with, with my sister and my grandmother. Um, I still remember dreams that I had when my grandmother passed away and some of them, I, I made, pictures out of it fine art photos wow. and with my sister I also did did an exhibition on uh I called it the bone marrow because she passed away with uh leukemia and um sometimes I look at her videos and I just smiled but sometimes I just look at a video and I just feel sad and I just want to cry I just want to cry let it go and then I put some music that will lift me up and I just start smiling again It's like, it, it's like a little roller coaster and it's been four years. It's just that, like you said, there's no time frame. It just gets a little easier with time, but the pain, I guess, um, will always be there because they're not here. 
And, and will you say that it's because we are afraid of the unknown? Well, maybe that's true, you know, because there are people who feel very, who have strong convictions in their beliefs around the afterlife, right. you know, that find peace that are, that don't, and, and it depends, like some people have strong convictions in the afterlife and feel a lot of pain. So it, again, it depends on such a complicated topic, right? Um, and I find a lot of comfort in talking to people who feel that way. It's not, it's not how I see the world. I don't have a really strong conviction on what happens after we die. I'm very agnostic and curious, but I feel like I'll never know. I think part of it is as humans, it's our biological imperative to attach to the ones we love. And I'm not trying to strip down something emotional and heartfelt and make it biological. But like, it's totally normal. In fact, it would be completely abnormal if someone you love died and you felt nothing. Right. Right. It's like, that is the very definition of love is that when they're gone, we're going to be devastated. And so we talk a lot about learning to live with our loss, not getting over our loss or not grief ends because we know it doesn't the space between emotional pain might get wider, you know, there might be more months or even years that pass. I can tell you that a couple months ago, I opened a box that my mother had sent me and hadn't given me much warning about what was inside. And I opened it up and there's about six or seven of my uncle's driver's licenses. Wow. And the pain I felt for the next two hours was like the pain I felt as that seven-year-old child only maybe worse because I understand permanence of loss. And in the case with my uncle, you know, I was seven when he died. So I would say my grief isn't so much about missing him, although I do miss him. I remember him. I hung out with it. You know, he's part of my life, right. but, but the space between seven and 50 has all been about he's not here to go through this with me. He's not here to be the, the one adult I can turn to who isn't gonna, who's gonna support, you know, like all those things I hear that right. uncles are, but that I've never gotten to experience because my father's uncle, by the way, also died when I was two. I mean, my father's oh, wow. brother. So I had two uncles that died by the time I was seven. It's been this big void, um, which is hard to explain to someone who hasn't had that kind of lifelong void. And I'm an only child. So like, there's, oh my no, goodness. there's like nobody other than parents or grandparents to go to with the stuff that people go to with the, to the siblings or the uncle, you know, so it's that right. role that was missing, but you know, this was just a couple months ago and, and the pain was very real and very palpable mm -hmm. and physical and intense. So I don't want to say that the pain lessens because it doesn't necessarily lessen the duration will probably lessen right. just changes it changes. Yeah. Right. But I can talk about Doug most days and, you know, and be, you know, curious or ask my mom and I, you know, I'll talk about him often and it's not as it, we can have a conversation. Whereas honestly, I think it was up until I was probably in my thanatology program where it was really hard to talk to her about it because I mean, her, her experience of grief was very intense. Her sibling died, right. which, you know, is hard. 
Yeah. Really, really hard. Wow. Let, let's touch a little bit on, on, on body image. How does this grieving shows up in, in our bodies? And does this have anything to do with um, letting go? So one thing that surprises people who haven't experienced grief when they, when they finally experience grief is how physical grief is. Hmm. And again, you know, like the stages of grief, I don't want to say there's certain ways there are frequent ways that people experience grief in the body, you know, common ways I'll say, and it's excruciating. It's excruciating. And so people might suddenly feel like their body has turned on them. I've Mm. heard that or feel like they have no control over their body. We know that the mind-body connection is a two-way street. So there can be this real vicious cycle between your mind and your body in terms of your suffering. And so that's why in what I offer, you know, with my Awaken program and in my book, everything I do starts with caring for the body. Mm. Because just like back with the guilt or with talking about letting go of the pain to feel the joy. Like, I can't tell you to do that. This isn't a cognitive choice. It's not intellectual. It's, it's on a whole other level. And so I can't come to you and say, Hey, why don't you just relax your body? Why don't you let go of some of that stress? How often does that work when someone tells you, (laughs) you know, but I can come to you and say, all right, let's talk about sleep hygiene and see some of the behaviors that we can improve. Let's talk Mm. about getting water into your body. Are you eating? I don't, I don't care if you're eating a gallon of ice cream a night. Are you also getting a banana or some broccoli into your system as well? Like, you know, what can we add to what you're doing to improve it? Can we maybe cut back on the wine a little bit? You know, these, these are things when we can care for our body, it can help get our brain online and our emotions online. Anyone who's stayed up till two, three, 4 a.m., writing a paper or working on a project knows how the next day you're impacted with grief. It could be months of this only you're not writing a paper. You're just spinning your wheels, you know? So the body, when you can make your body an ally on your grief journey, you will decrease your suffering much quicker and make space for you to do the work you need to do to process the loss and to live your life after the loss. Yeah. And not to mention that um, a lot of um, illnesses might show up. Yeah. I mean, grief is one of the biggest, if not the biggest stressor that you will ever experience. And stress-related illnesses are real. Mm -hmm. Hello, shingles. I've been through that. I have plenty of friends who've had different, you know, we all either know someone or have someone or you've gotten a cold because you're running yourself ragged. And I'm not saying this to shame any of us who've got, this isn't about like stress-related illness shaming. It's just reality. Right. And you feel awful. Um, there's, there's research that shows that spouses who lose a partner have a higher inst- instance of mortality within six months to a year after the death of a spouse. And part of this can be from illness, heart attacks. So there's a a study that that, um, specifically studied heart attacks or heart 
Um, I don't remember if it also includes strokes. I'm pretty sure it was just heart attacks, but also accidents. So think about, you know, and that kind of makes sense because you're feeling disembodied and distracted and exhausted. Like it's so much easier to get hurt when you're in that mind state. And so again, you know, I, I don't wish the pandemic on any of us. Like it breaks my heart that we're having to go through this, but I will tell you that I feel a lot better knowing that my grieving clients aren't getting in a car and driving to my center mm-hmm. and then turning around, driving back. Like I actually, right. you know, feel that if somebody's really new to it. I, I am really looking forward to see why your answer to this one is. Uh, being unapologetically you to me means being true to who you are and what you believe in. In other words, not seeking approval to show up authentically in order to blend in. Is there anything um, at this stage of your life that you're going to stop apologizing for or something that you stopped apologizing for um, maybe a year or two or five, 10 years ago that helped you level up in your business? Wow. So I think that something that I'm still working on, but I'm getting better at, and this is going to be like really authentic, you know, I, I've published a lot of books and chapters and I've accomplished a lot. I can look on paper and be like, wow, that girl has got some training and some skills, but I still struggle with imposter syndrome, Mm. still struggle with it which on one level might keep me humble and honest. I don't know, (laughs) but like it, it cuts me off from experiencing the true joy. And so I started reading the fifth agreement, Mm. um, the follow-up to the four agreements. And the fifth agreement is I'm, I'm like rereading it right now. I just started about three weeks ago. I'm, I listened to it on the audiobook three times. I'm now reading it. And it's really about dropping the stories that you were told about who you are. And I have a boatload of stories about who I think I am based on, (laughs) you know, both good and bad. And so I am really working on monitoring, being mindful of when I am telling myself a story about myself Yeah, and seeing if I can drop that story and just be in the moment. And I think that while it hasn't radically changed things yet, I feel like it's right around the corner. Mm. I feel like I'm going to be more productive because I'm going to spend less time second guessing myself. I feel like I'll be more relaxed when I do interviews or give talks, right. you know, because I'll just be coming from my heart, which I feel like I am with you. Like this, yes. this has been a nice conversation. I wanted to just really share that authentically with people because I've been, like I said, I've been an entrepreneur since I was 26, which which is amazing. You know, that you're saying this about the imposter syndrome because you're not new to this. No. And it's like, it's my first radio. Everyone out there. And this is why I love asking this question because for anyone out there, look at, they will see you and say, wow, this woman has accomplished so much. 
I'll never do that. I'll never be able to do that. I'll never be able to, uh, I'm too old or maybe I'm too young and nobody will take me seriously, which by the way, we both um, had a background on, on web design. <laughs> we have right. so many things yeah. in common. <laughs> um, anyone out there, don't give up. Keep doing it. Keep working. Imposter syndrome in my in my opinion is just finding the confidence and to really telling yourself this is me i need to change my story just like you said and and to be honest with you mindfulness meditation and this is why i love it because this is what has helped me but that's amazing thank you so so much for being so honest it's i've had this conversation with a couple people lately i had it in a um in a mastermind group I've in, where I'm just like, you know, they're looking at my books and all, and I'm just like, dude, there's so much more I could do, you know? <laughs> and my mom and I were talking about this actually yesterday where I never really told her, you know, like that I have this, but I think talking about it to people who are supportive, yes, you know, and sharing it with you, nice podcast listeners who I know are going to be loving and kind, you know, like I think saying it out loud, like you shine the light on it and, and then just try to drop the story. Yes. As best as you can. Oh, yeah. that's so awesome. <laughs> Heather, thank you. Thank you so much for this amazing knowledge and wisdom that you share with us today. Uh, it's been a pleasure having this conversation with you today and links to your website, podcast, social media accounts where people can connect with you will be provided on the show notes of this episode so that they can go and check it out. You do have a podcast. Can you talk a little bit about your podcast before I we close? Absolutely. So I host the Mindfulness and Grief podcast where I interview guests and occasionally a guest will interview me about different grief related topics that mm. often lead towards mindfulness, but sometimes might go out outside the lines a little bit into other areas that are helpful and supportive. So you can find that wherever you're listening to this podcast on your favorite podcatcher. Um, and you can also look at the archive um, on your podcatcher, as well as at mindfulnessandgrief.com and just click on the podcast button. And I also wanted to say, if you do visit mindfulnessandgrief.com, you'll be able to download my free navigating grief guide that takes you through those eight steps of the mindfulness and grief system. And it has an exercise for each oh, step. Awesome. Thank you so much. And you have a beautiful day. Thank you so much. And I hope you have a peaceful day. And just, I want to bow out with your sister in mind. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening today. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with your friends and family and consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts or tell us what you think on social media, on Instagram and Twitter at Mayi Lens and on Facebook page, Conversations with Mayi Lens. I'm so grateful to be on this journey with you. Until next time, talk to you soon.